We are speaking with the renowned founder of Peace and Conflict Studies, Dr. Johan Galtung, author of countless publications, conflict mediator, founder of Transcend International and the Galtung Institute, consultant to governments, the UN, and so much more. I'd like to cover two central themes today. First, the fall of the U.S. empire and its consequences, either a blossoming republic or a catastrophe, as you say. And second, what global issues you consider the most pressing today and what suggestions you have to resolve these conflicts. Now, in 1980, you successfully predicted the fall of the Soviet Union, which you said would happen in 1990. You used six indicators to do this, and then in recent years, you doubled those indicators to 12 and applied them in analyzing the fall of the other superpower, the USA. You brought up this subject in an article recently on Transcend Media, citing an essay by Nafiz Ahmed and a new Pentagon study which seemed to further confirm your findings that Empire America is approaching its final death throes. And even renowned researcher Alfred McCoy has published a book that will be out soon on the same theme. He has set 2030 as the Empire's uh, time marker for passing. You recently revised your prediction for the collapse from 2025 to 2020. Is this the most important event of our time, and can you unpack the key points and implications of the Empire's end for us and help us understand what is about to happen? Well, let us first be very clear about the terms here. You see, the other person you quoted... I think he gets it wrong. An empire means that you have a client state that does the job for you. And when I predicted the decline and fall of the U.S. empire, I did not predict the decline or fall of U.S. violence. I did not predict the decline or fall of the United States of America. I predicted that we do the killing for the United States because the empire would collapse. Now, the situation is the following. You may have noticed that in Bratislava, November 6, last year, they had a big discussion about European Union countries. And what they said again and again and again was, we are no longer going to fight the wars of the United States. That was a very clear statement. And that is the kind of thing I'm looking for. However, there are some countries that are still, and still have been fighting wars in the United States, more particularly three countries, United Kingdom, Denmark, and Norway. And Denmark and Norway were rewarded by the United States for fighting in Libya by being appointed Secretary General of NATO, one after the other. The present one is a former Norwegian prime minister. Why United Kingdom, Denmark and Norway? Well, you see, here you have to look into history. I could say immediately because they are evangelical Protestant countries like the United States. But I'm not saying that these are religious wars. I'm just saying that being evangelical Protestant, the United States... England, with the famous Anglican Church, from which very many people came to what became the United States, Norway and Denmark, being that they have something in common, some kind of loyalty, solidarity, and 
the countries that refused to fight U.S. wars, the Catholic countries and Orthodox countries. So you see, we are not saying that this is religious. I'm only saying that all ties of solidarity play an enormous role. So if I then predicted the decline and fall of the United States Empire by 2020, one might say we are today 2017 and we are into the month of September. So, Johan Galtung, how about your prediction? You said before 2020. Yes, I stand by that one. But I think the three countries I mentioned, United Kingdom, Denmark, and Norway will distance themselves from the United States killing. And that is already happening, and of course it's particularly easy to distance oneself when the President of the United States is a clinically insane person, Donald Trump. Clinically insane, suffering from autism, living in his own little bubble and deriving his so-called foreign policy from his bubble. In other words, I stand by my prediction, but it's a little bit more complicated than the person you quoted. I think he got almost everything wrong, and I prefer to forget about it. Uh, in, in your research, you, you say you were inspired by uh, analyzing the fall of the, the Roman Empire. Um, could we say that Trump is a cause, as not a cause, but a symptom of the end, the degenerating phase of the empirical cycle? Uh, he's a part of it. He's a part of it. Uh, but what is collapsing now is more than the United States Empire. What is collapsing right now is the United States of America itself. But that was not my prediction. I did not predict that they would elect a clinically unsane person as president. It's an American term for it. They call it unleveled. One whose mind is unleveled. Well, it's a very polite term for it. I say clinically insane. Autism. Suffering from advanced autism. That means lack of reciprocity. Living in your own bubble and not being sensitive to what happens around you. Of course, he is sensitive. He is paranoid. So he is sensitive to negative noises. And he lashes out against them. At the same time, he is very clearly narcissistic, with much too high thoughts about himself. Now, narcissism plus paranoia is the precise nature of the psychosis. But he is a part of the package. And as you very well put it, he's not a cause, he's a symptom. And where do you see um, the U.S. going in the next few years? How do you see some... Uh, can you give us some indicators of how things might uh, unfold or what might occur with the economy or, or the society? Well, you see, uh, history is a good guide. In 1898, the Spanish Empire collapsed and the United States moved into the gaps left by the Spanish Empire. Now the U.S. empire is collapsing, 
and moving into the gaps left by the United States Empire, uh, particularly China, India, economically speaking, and Chindia, um, they are often called. Uh, there are other countries too, Islamic countries play an increasing role in very many regards, but you can then ask the question, what happened to Spain? Well, Spain became fascist. I said, the fall was in 1898, came up immediately, it was a dictatorship. And that lasted 70 years. Franco was the last one. He died in November 75. And there was a short into the so-called Second Republic, which was very beautiful in Spanish history. So if I now should say, maybe this is going to happen to the United States too. In other words, we will get a dictatorship to establish law and order, as dictators always say. And many will argue it is already there. But there is no particular person who is the dictator. It is more run by a combination of Pentagon and Wall Street. In other words, by top generals and top billionaires. Top actors in the Wall Street conglomerate. And how they are organized among themselves, I think, would be interesting to know. I don't know it. I think very few people know it, in fact. Looking at, say, Afghanistan, you said earlier that the U.S. obviously should and perhaps would withdraw from Afghanistan. It seems they are reinforcing their commitments to stay and attempting a classical imperial military overstretch. Uh, What can you say of the recent Afghan policy statements? Overstretch is not a good analysis. You see, how about simply understanding what Afghanistan is about? You see, in my profession as a mediator, I take direct contact with the parties concerned. I sit with general, two-star general from Pentagon. I sit with people high up in State Department. I sit with people in a place in Afghanistan. And in front of me are three leading Taliban. So, what does a mediator say? What is my question? I have a very simple question. And it's the same question all the time. What does the Afghanistan look like that you would like to live in? What does the Middle East look like? What does a marriage look like that you would like to be a party to? And so on. In other words, I just ask them to spell out their wishes, their goals, their positive future. And now, it would be interesting if anybody is listening to this in Washington, if they are able to guess what the Taliban said. And the Taliban said the following. Eliminated Duran line. Duran. D-U-R-A-N-D. Line. Eliminated immediately. Now, since I'm into history... And since this is my profession, I of course knew what that was. It was the line drawn by a British imperialist in 1893. 
to make a border between what was then the British Empire, today it's called Pakistan, that part of it, and Afghanistan. And that guy decided to draw a line 4,000 kilometers, 2,500 miles long, and he drew it according to some principle he was very proud of, and the line cut the biggest nation in the world without a state, the Pashtun, in two parts. Now, today they are 50 million, and they live Many of them in Afghanistan, many of them in Pakistan. And to them, that line is a complete crime. It cuts them in two. And that line was drawn in 1893. And it is quite obvious that when I ask them, what does the Afghanistan look like that you would like to live in? He said immediately, eliminated Yudan line, open border between Pakistan and Afghanistan, let us move back and forth in what was our old Stan, our old, where we used to live. It's not a question for us of seeking refuge in Pakistan. Pakistan, we live partly there, we live partly in Afghanistan. Let us continue with that. And out of today's Pakistan, Afghanistan, you might make some kind of, shall we say, community. And if I should spin more on that, I would say, yes, a Central Asian community. And maybe not only Pakistan and Afghanistan. Maybe you would like to add Iran, too. And maybe you would like to add the five other stands, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, and so on. Maybe you would like to add all of that. And suddenly you have a Central Asian community of about 12 million, excuse me now, let me be careful, 12 million uh, uh, people and uh, an enormous area, uh, excuse me, 12,000 square kilometers and I think 20 million people. Now, this is a big one. And um, interesting. I'm not quite sure India or China or my neighbors would be very happy about it. But that's their right to establish a community and to do away with the borders that were drawn by others. Many of these borders, as a matter of fact, drawn by the former Soviet Union. The 1893 Duran one is what we have to eliminate. And instead of that, the United States is now building palisades high, high up in the sky and deep, deep down to prevent tunnels from being dig, and will make the situation even worse. And another term, perhaps, for what you just described could be the New Silk Road. Um, and on the news, we keep hearing about this new Cold War with the U.S. Tar- targeting Russia uh, and China. Do you think there's a chance for real escal- escalation towards thermonuclear war. Is the Pentagon preparing a genuine offensive on the Eurasian heartland and on the maritime rimlands of China? Do you see this escalating? Personally, I don't think we will get that far. I don't think it. 
I um, it's too risky for all the parties. They are, in a certain sense, deterring each other. The um, North Korea has, it seems, been able to dig 19,000 caves inside their mountains. And that's where they are hiding all their weaponry. And very many of these caves, and there are also others, other not necessarily in the mountains, will serve as a refuge for the people. It's not that they are not aware that they are in a dangerous position. And mind you, the United States has been bombing Pyongyang to pieces before. They did that, and they could do it again. It's shown that this time North Korea is much, much better prepared. And what is highly credible is, of course, the artillery aimed at Seoul. That artillery is also inside the mountains. And it seems that it can, if really launched, kill 8 million people very quickly. Now, Seoul knows that this is not going to happen. But Seoul is also at the same time South Korea very worried about the United States provocations. And those provocations are partly the weapon shield that they are building to catch possible U.S. missiles, uh, Chinese missiles, and partly the so-called twin-spirit exercises right off North Korea's coast, practicing invasion of North Korea, just right outside. Well, that has been going on every year. It's going on right now. And it's an enormous provocation to North Korea. Russia and China have asked them to, to dampen it, to abolish it, to postpone it. But U.S. doesn't listen to anything. U.S. is a unilateralist country. And the horrible thing about it is that they don't want negotiation. Because negotiation is something you do with equals, but it indicates that you respect the other as a party to be taken seriously. The United States is unilateralist, exception. The United States tells others what to do, and if you don't do it, you will suffer the consequences. And now they're up against China, doesn't obey that, Russia doesn't do it. And what must be even more vexing for them, a small country called North Korea doesn't do it. We're dealing with, let us say, 19 million inhabitants, very small country. And that country is now at the level of the United States when it comes to the verbal escalation and the de facto escalation with different types of weaponry and so on. All that story we know, it's out in the open, but I don't think we will get aboard. Sooner or later, one of them has to make some kind of move, and I don't think it will be United States. If you want my prediction, it will be South Korea. It may also be South Korea and Japan. It may be that Japan's Prime Minister is ambivalent about it, 
On the one hand, there is an alliance, shoulder to shoulder, as they call it, with the United States of America, fighting. On the other hand, he knows perfectly well where in the world Japan is located. It's in East Asia. It is not off California. And ultimately, after all is said and done, would you say the way things will go is that these new Silk Road countries that you mentioned, that in a few decades, that that will be the center of global economy and, and culture and politics, which may include South Korea and Japan? Well, China will be important. But also be aware of China's weaknesses. It's an aging population. That's one problem. Another problem is that they have a very complicated way of doing their things. I call it the both-and approach. You know, they do so many both-ands. They are both doing growth and distribution. Where you will see that the West is trying to focus on growth, which now it does badly, and very bad at distribution, with rising inequality. You have rising inequality in China, but you also have lifting the bottom up. So both inequality and lifting the bottom up. Now I have a long list of these both ands for China. And um, maybe too complicated even for the Chinese to run that. It may also be that they are incurring debt because they are focusing less on export for growth and more on internal changes. Very much on lifting, lagging villages up. The, the president, Xi Jinping, is very much insisting on that. And at the same time, turning into a Buddhist religious position. It has escaped the West to a large extent. But Xi is a very believing Buddhist. And that's also escaped West's attention. But Putin, however much they see him, as a politician they don't like, is at the same time a deeply believer in Orthodox Christianity. So we have this interesting thing of a kind of secular pagan uh, leadership, uh, very much by money and by arms in Washington, where you sense nothing religious no kind of Christian love your neighbor like yourself and things of that kind. Nothing of that. You have that in the West that looks at itself very often as spiritual and Christian. And at the same time you have two deeply religious leaders in the most competitive countries, China and Russia. It's a new world, if you will. A very different one. You see, when I say the U.S. empire is going down, I as emphasize they're not saying that they're stopping killing, but they have to do the killing themselves. 
And the first who started doing that, who understood that I had to do the killing myself, was Obama. But Obama didn't talk about it. He killed. And the way he killed was little bit by drones. And the Western media focused on that. Much more important was snipers. Sending shooters who could kill a person at a range of one kilometer with long, long rifles and they travel by ordinary airplanes and the rifles are of course called for hunting. Well, they were hunting people that the local CIA had designated as anti-American and they killed a lot, a lot, a lot. We travel a lot these days, the Lieutenant General in charge of it said in a famous interview. So, Obama did all of that, but he didn't talk much about it. If I then should say about Trump, he talks an enormous amount, but he hasn't done much killing. He has done some. And we sense it in Yemen, in Somalia, in the Sudan, we sense it. And it could be more, but not so much as Obama. Obama is reputed to have done the type of killing that I mentioned in 134 countries without asking any permission for the government's concern, just sending the snipers with long-hunting, quote-unquote, rifles. We just have a minute or two left, and can you leave us with any final thoughts uh, or any other uh, prognostication or prediction you might have for the, the future world order and, and any other final thoughts? Well, you see, out of all of this, and you may be surprised to hear me say it, I think the world as a whole is actually moving in a quite good direction. We have, practically speaking, no wars between states. That's already something. Well, wars between states were outlawed in 1928, the Kellogg-Briand Treaty. But that is not maybe the major reason. I think the major reason is that the states are afraid of each other. And the military don't like to fight another state when they can do something else. They can kill civilians. They can sit up in a plane at 14,000 feet or let us say 4,000 meters, and they can just push a button, and they can send a rain of bombs on innocent civilians, where there may be a couple of militias among them. And they can do what we read about all the time, killing wedding parties. You know, in the old days, if you go back in history, the condition for taking somebody's life in a war was that you put yourself at risk, you put your own life at risk. In other words, you were, you had courage. You entered the warfare with the courage, putting your own life at risk. These people sitting up at 14,000 feet are cowards, just simply cowards. They're killing people with not the slightest chance of retaliating. They don't have anti-aircraft missiles. They don't have anything of that. 
and they're just killing, killing, killing these cowards. And they should be known as such. They shouldn't be called even military. They should just be called cowards. Should be the technical term for them. I have contempt, disgust for these people. Now, is this now, how can I then nevertheless say that things are moving? Well, it's one country, the United States of America, and I think it's coming to an end. I think Trump is making a caricature of the United States of America that the U.S. itself will reject. But I don't think the future inside the U.S. is good. I predict a fascist dictatorship. But I don't think they will be killing. Like the fascist dictatorship that came out of the Spanish fallen empire. Didn't kill anybody abroad. They were just, well, you can say there was the element of Guernica, but that was after all in Spain. Um, but by and large, it was a civil war that took place. A civil, which is a strange expression, an internal war. So it's that kind of future I see for the U.S. And I see gradually, slowly, U.S. democratizing again coming back to democracy and coming back to finding a reasonable place in the world as a part of Anglo-America in the northern part of the Americans in dialogue with Latin America, Anglo-America versus Latin America and the Latin America reasonably united. First of all, rejecting U.S. imperialism it was done by Fidel Castro, a historical job. Secondly, coming together, and that was done by Hugo Chavez, also an historical job. U.S. has done their very best or worst to try to negate what Castro and Chavez were doing. They won't succeed. And it will be in Anglo-America's interest simply to sit down somewhere and have a balanced, nice dialogue about the best relations between Anglo-America and Latin America. Latin America, of course, includes Caribbean, which is a very complex part of the world, <laughs> but it is possible. And I think one should remember that Latin America, Caribbean, has 35 countries altogether, 35 states, 35. There is only one of them that can be said to be very much tied to Anglo-America. And not to U.S., but to Canada. And that is Trinidad-Tobago. Between Trinidad and Canada, there is a very close relationship. But otherwise, the relationship could be improved. And it would improve greatly if Anglo-America is willing to face Latin America together. ELAC, as they call it, Estados Latinoamericanos y Caribe. Well, we are not yet quite there, but that is an optimistic vision of the future. And the United States finds its place as one state among others, a big one, an important one, a fantastically innovative one. And it plays out its best card 
and the best card from the United States. It's not military, not economic, not political. It's cultural. The United States is a cultural, the cultural power, shaping the world more than any other culture. Not even the British Council has been able to spread English with an English accent. The United States of America does that. By its pop culture, its popular culture, its basic English, the English of a 10 to 12 years old, according to the British English. But it has become the world-dominant culture. The world-dominant culture is U.S. And U.S. has reason to be proud of it and say, if you are dominating the world culturally, isn't that already quite a lot? And it might be that you yourself would benefit from trying to understand the Hindu message, the Buddhist message, the Japanese message, the Chinese messages, and so on and so on. Well, I think we are heading for a multipolar world. And I think we are there to a large extent. But the United States has to be tamed or tame itself. And Israel has to be tamed or tame itself. And it looks like that is what's happening right now to Israel. Dr. Goltang, we thank you so much for your time. Uh, and we wish you the best uh, in your continued work uh, and your efforts at Transcend Media and at your Galtung Institute. Thank you so much indeed for the interview, and be sure I'll continue. Thank you.